0: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and podcaster and supervising producer of the A Year in Film podcast, Emily Gangye. Do movies really need a structured plot? Sometimes it's just nice to spend time with some people who you find fascinating or funny, or intriguing. Sometimes it feels like when pressing play, you're coming back to old friends, and sometimes it's getting insight into people's worlds you know nothing about. Both our films today, Between the Lines and Peppermint Soda, are essentially a series of happenings around a group of characters, with shifting points of view and events, and they work best when they don't deal with a structured three-act plot. But in addition to that, what they have in common is the feeling that times are changing. 1977 is the perfect year to look at changing times as the boomers reckon with the Death of Ideals, and move solidly into the me era. I mean, we're looking at stuff, uh, in 78 we talked a lot about Vietnam and all that disillusionment with the government and people being forced to do things, but like, 77's got a ton of other movies that are about disillusionment too. What do you think, Alicia?
1: Yeah, I think um, that makes a lot of sense, and there's also, if you think about 1977 as a release year of films, there's so much fantasy, there's so much genre, it goes without saying that it's dominated by Star Wars Um, so there's a lot of escapism at the box office rather than social realities, which Puts these two films in a very, I think, unique place for 1977.
0: It's a lot of pre and post um, Star Wars happening as well. Both these movies, I believe, are pre Star Wars, and we're seeing still the rise of the indie movie coming up with, like, even Paramount really pushing for, like, all these new directors, new things like that. Um, Emily, what are you, what's your kind of point of view of all these new filmmakers that are coming through? Even
2: stars of the time, like Jane Fonda, who's somebody that I looked really closely at. in a podcast series of my own, like started the era sort of figuring out what she wanted to say. And by the end of this era is actually coming into what she wants to say. The next year she does coming home, you know, talking about um, Vietnam and the aftermath of, of what the toll that was taken on people that went through Vietnam. So I think that, um, People that maybe had become radicalized earlier on in the era were sort of coming into their own voice at this time. And uh, I know the other day I saw Looking for Mr. Goodbar for the first time, which is a I film. I saw it with
1: Emily as well. yes. <laughs> in a theater.
2: And it it just rattled you me. You looked so
1: upset after
2: this. I, I was upset because I, know, I think too. it's a film that is both like speaking to a change of time where you know you couldn't be as free as you were in the 60s you couldn't you couldn't love people the same way as you did in the 60s without fearing for yourself but also it's like there's a freedom in expressing yourself it's just this complicated back and forth this juxtaposition between uh, freedom and 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 the price that comes with freedom you know what I mean like it's it's complicated and um it's
0: kind of scary I feel like what we're seeing here too is this like i need to focus more on myself and my own needs that before you had this like big group mentality like you know the feminist we had a lot of movements you know we had the civil rights move in the 60s the uh, second wave feminism happening throughout the early 70s into the mid 70s which you're seeing the reflection of both in these movies as well as in looking for mr goodbar and other films throughout it turning points got a little bit of it. And when you're looking at these kinds of like big shifts, then it's it's all about the us. And then it becomes very much about the me, which I think you're going to see more of in uh, our first movie, which is the the Between the Lines. And that's, of course, getting into like the me generation. Consumerism is good. We can't keep making money at the bottom independently. We all have to like just kind of shark our way up to the top, which is going to lead into movies in the 80s, you know, our Gordon geckos and, and everything Michael Douglas ever played. Like it's a very interesting transition that's happening here. Thanks the rise
1: of the yuppie, right? The hippie turns into the yuppie. Like there was free love when they were in the early 20s. And then by the age of 35, um, they want to drive Volvos and (laughs) have Cuisinart mixers and all the things that come with um, upper middle class success. Totally. But then there's still, and that's hard for artists and that's hard for people like the characters that we're going to talk about in between
0: the lines. It's a real schism. So someone who had their finger on the pulse of the changing times was writer and filmmaker Joan McLean-Silver. She had an eclectic path to filmmaking, which we're going to get into, but on that path, she took a stop as a writer for the influential Village Voice in the late 60s and early 70s. This, of course, made her a perfect candidate to direct Between the Lines, which she did not write, but you can feel her directorial stamp all over it, and maybe about a third of the movie is improv that she guided. Now, Alicia, you ran a retrospective on Joan McLean Silver at TIFF recently. Can you talk a bit about Between the Lines and where it fits into her filmography?
1: Yeah, it's her second feature film. Um, that being said, there is a film between her debut, which is Hester Street, uh, 1975, and we do talk about that on um, a year in film season two, of the television show. Uh, between Hester Street and Between the Lines, she makes Bernice Bob's Her Hair, which is like the best F. Scott Fitzgerald adaptation of all time. Now it's only an hour long, so it kind of gets qualified as a short and not a feature. I feel that it actually should be taken as a feature, but that's fine. Um, and it started Shelley Duval and Bud Court and it's it's fantastic. It's it's so good. Um and you know Between the Lines was a project that when she was at Cannes with I believe Hester Street, um which it did exceptionally well. Uh, she met the screenwriter of this the, of this film, Between the Lines, and really, it really resonated with her. It's it's a film about a group of journalists who are running an alternative uh, newspaper that covers the arts and politics and kind of think like Now Magazine, R.I.P., for uh, Toronto, um, but in Boston. And for Joan, it, it made a lot of sense because she was a freelance writer for The Village Voice in the 1960s, and this was very much a world that she knew of um, – you know, chosen poverty um, (laughs) and, you know, scrounging enough money for beers. And like, you're a professional and you're working probably 80 hours a week, but you can't afford your apartment or, you know, um, our character, we're going to talk a lot about Jeff Goldblum in this film, Max Harloft. He's, you know, pawning records that he shouldn't be that are bootlegs. Like you just do anything you can to scrape together a living while you live for your work. And not only do you live for your work, In your writing, but you live for your community. And like all of these people that work at this um, newspaper, the Back Bay, what is it called? The Back Bay Mainline. Um, They just call it the Mainline. They're friends and they're not friends. They're sleeping with each other. They're cheating on each other. They're, it's so, it just took me back. Not that I had that, but it took me (laughs) back to a time where I, I really miss being in like my mid to late 20s, somewhat my early 30s working at TIFF, where you just went out every day after work. You had a community. I mean, it was helpful because our, our building had multiple bars in it. But, um, I miss that. Like, you just see these people hanging out as their newspapers about to be taken over by a major corporation and gutted, also looking at Now Magazine, R.I.P., um, and the struggles, just the total struggles of selling out. Uh, and I think this is her one of her best films. She has a lot of films. And it's only in her, the aftermath of her death, she died on uh, New Year's Eve 2020, which just ended that year.
0: On <laughs> a perfect note. There you go. Yeah.
1: And that was the moment where I was like, oh my God, as soon as theaters open, I've got to get a retrospective at TIFF. In, in the aftermath of her death, people are now talking about her because I do feel that she wasn't properly assessed or even celebrated in her lifetime, to be honest, even though she has she did revolutionary work for television, revolutionary work for the Jewish community as seen on in film, revolutionary work in educational film. Because before Hester Street, she was partnered with Joan Ganz Cooney, who would eventually found Sesame Street and the children's workshop and made educational short films that are we always think of like, OK, you the TV wheels into the classroom the squeaky wheel. These are going to be really bad films. Hers are incredible. The immigrant experience. The, uh, there's a fur jacket club. I can't remember what it's called. Um, I love these films. The million is it million dollar duck? There's one with a duck that I love <laughs> so much. These are gorgeous films. There's one that she um, wrote with fucking Barbara Loden. Like it's crazy. And her career is it, it, she is the absolute like poster child for independent filmmaking success. And of course, when we think about Jewish cinema, cinema, we only think of Woody Allen which Annie Hall is 1977, and this is also 1977. And to me, it's I like Annie Hall, but I know which one I would
0: rather watch. And this one I think ages a little better as well. It doesn't have a lot of taint to it, but this is also a film that um, a lot of journalists and like big journalists look at and credit for them wanting to go into the journalism industry. Um, and as we mentioned before, it is a movie very much about um, deciding whether or not it's time for you to sell out. If you, if the ideal, if the dream is dead, if you're making an impact at all, uh, we didn't even talk about, this is the debut film for uh, actors like John Hurd and Mary Lou Henner and Jeff Goldblum and one of the Joe things, Morton. yeah, exactly. And one of the things for for me that I love about John McLean Silver is her eye for talent is mm-hmm. bananas. She gave debut films and her casting for people who not just would be amazing in this role, but work amazing as an ensemble. Like everybody, this this is a movie that feels lived in. That everybody has been working together for like the last ten years. Everybody has had their huge highs, and now they're coming into this low together, and they're figuring things out. And that's the only way this movie works because it feels lived in.
2: Yeah. I love all of the side characters. One of my favorites is Bruno Kirby as sort of just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, Bruno come. Kirby. yes, of course he's and he and, and Jeff Goldblum would go on to be friends for, mm-hmm. for life, but he is so cute and so scrappy and just like trying to get every piece of information he can from anybody, but still not sure what he's writing about. Like, is it the life of the whale? Is it the life of the duck? Like what is the story? You know,
1: <laughs> a whale of a tail. Now let me tell you about that title. I know that it's corny, but I want it to be corny. I want them to look at it and think that it's some kind of fluff. They will.
2: But my favorite scene in the in the film is, is Mary Lou Henner in the scene when they like go to interview her, and she's just a dancer at this club. And like Burlesque, it's this, yeah. and it, it's it's like so short, but you feel like you know that character. Like you feel like you you understand who she is in this small moment. And I think that that's something that Joan is so good at doing is like giving each of these people like a story, even if we don't know their whole story.
1: I think a lot of what you're hitting at is she was brilliant at using on location shooting. So like when you're talking about Mary Lou Henner sequence, where it's a, it's a real strip club in Boston. It's a real nudie bar. The the pawning of the records, that is a real pawn shop slash record record store that people in 1977 in boston would have recognized the bars are the real are real the restaurants are real this was true of hester street too with shooting on the lower east side this is you know she's shooting on hester street (laughs) like it really is these are real places that have an aura and i think that that allowed the actors to really draw from reality because it does feel very lived in like you say um and these this is the most accurate depiction of shitty apartments that I've ever seen. <laughs> it like, actually
0: looks like, yeah, I know you watch a lot of worst. modern movies and you're like, oh, these people are starving to death. And it's this like giant palatial warehouse loft in the middle of yeah. like Manhattan. And you're like, this is yeah. like a $7 million apartment. This is the anti-friends. Yeah. yeah. Like these yeah. are, um,
1: the kinds of apartments that would have a bathtub in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, you know, really dirty mattresses on the floor. <laughs> like it's just, this is how they live and that resonates with me. Um, it's gla- it's not glamorized and yet you never feel like it's not a world you would want to be a part of and i think i don't know how she does it but it's amazing
0: but i it's also that you you get a joy with these people, even though these people are going through a difficult time right now. You have these wonderful dance scenes where you see them party. And I am such a sucker. Mm. We're gonna talk about this in Peppermint Soda. <laughs> I am such a sucker for watching people dance on film as like abandoned as possible. Ringo Star is one of the greatest dancers on film of all time. <laughs> Do not tell me he's not him in his weird punch dancing. Love it. Um, but this year seeing them dance together, they're going out, and they also have sex in a way that is number one, you don't see on film anymore. It's just it's free. It's abandoned, and it's wonderful and fun, and then it goes horribly wrong. And you, you get it. Um, everything feels real, like you're just hanging out with these people. It's a genuine hangout movie in the best possible way. You want to be these people's friends, even when they're being jerks. Yeah, yeah.
1: And 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 Jeff Goldblum dancing in this is just saying he only ever wears the entire film this navy, like this this army green jumpsuit.
0: Yeah, like the boiler with a red thing. satin
1: yeah. jacket over it, and it, it, like, that dancing scene with him he's so freakishly tall.
0: And it's and gangly. Just, oh,
1: I love it. I love that scene in the bar.
0: I love yeah. it because the word gangle to me is like onomatopoeic. Like you could just imagine people's limbs going gangle, gangle, gangle. And that's exactly what he does. It's great.
2: I think something that I love about this movie is like all of the characters are complicated and like we like them even when they're like not great people. Maybe except for Stephen Collins who like Bigger warning, Stephen Collins is in this movie. Giant asshole. Yeah. yeah. giant. Um, just don't, don't look him up. He's a bad man. Yeah. Um, but something that I I read that Joan said about the response to her characters, because I think she got a lot of criticism from men specifically, male critics, about the the men in this movie and are are they good people? And she said, somebody said to me about Between the Lines, I was too nice to make characters, and I said, What do you mean? And they said, you end up liking them all, even the awful ones. And I don't think that that's a criticism. I think that's pretty nice. I tend to see people as a mix. You know, the Jewish view is that people have the potential for good and evil. And I really agree. And I think Mm -hmm. that that is so true. You know, like even like we have characters that are that are cheating on there are significant others in this film but we don't like hate them at the end of the movie for it we kind of understand what they're going through in that moment yeah the
0: characters are more com- so complex that you're like I totally get what's going on and why they chose to do this and uh, I think for me what rings in it is that the women are so much more ambitious than the men and they've got more cojones than any of the men do
1: they also have to handle a lot more like they're handling everything domestically at home we see that in these terrible apartments they are paid less at this newspaper they are working harder like you really and you really see um female camaraderie in this like I we're talking about the dance scene in the bar but there's a fantastic dance scene with three of the co-workers um kind of I think they might be in their panties or one of them they're just like they're just hanging out drinking wine in the living room like they're having their girls night god it's just so so relatable and so realistic um I mean, if you think that these guys are spectacularly spineless, wait until you watch her next film, Tricky Scenes of Winter, <laughs> starring John Hurd, which is coming out on Criterion or will be out on Criterion um, by the time this airs. And that is, that is a complicated film about toxic masculinity that I absolutely love.
0: But she knew exactly how to cast John Hurd because in every movie he does, I mean, this is like quintessential John Hurd because every movie he does, he is this utter scumbag that you cannot help but be like, oh, but he's kind of cute and I'm kind of like okay Mm -hmm. with it. Like I just watched Cat People recently because it was on Criterion and I was like, this is what he does. It's like, it's perfect. And it's what he is in every single movie. And she just has his number for casting right away.
1: Yeah, she's so talented at it. But I mean, I think what we should probably make sure listeners understand is she's independent with a capital I yes like after Hester Street she had studios knocking on her door she could have done anything because Hester Street was independently financed by her and her husband who left his real estate career to help her um, and they established a film production unit and it was an immense success uh, Hester Street made so much money on such a low budget got Carol Kane a best actress nomination at the Oscars she and had not to mention a
0: WG, or a WG um, uh, screenwriting award for her. She got one best screenplay that year, too. She had carte blanche. And so she had this screenplay for Between the Lines, and
1: no one wanted to do it. But in the end, her husband, whose name's uh, Raphael Silver, was just like, you know what? There's going to be strength in us funding this entirely ourselves. We don't have to answer to anyone. We cast exactly who we want. We don't have to be have anyone imposed on us by the producers. And I think that kind of total control and keep in mind, this is an economic thing. Like they had money. Like he was a yeah. very powerful real estate agent.
0: <laughs> well, and also like, Hester Street got made in part because of Elia Kazan. So they had those yeah. kinds of people in their social circle. Is Elia Kazan is the one who looked at Hester Street and said, "This is too good just to put on the synagogue circuit and let's get let's and encouraged her to gave her some directorial notes and encouraged her to get it out to a wider audience. So they did yeah. have some powerful people in their corner in the film industry, including John Cassavetes. So yes. I mean,
1: yeah, there's a whole whole thing here. So it's important to note, like, not not everyone could have achieved this in 1977 <laughs> financially. Yeah. Um, and then even when she does work within the studio system, which she would for Chili Scenes of Winter, which is United Artists, and then later have an immense hit with Crossing Delancey in yeah. 1988, which we will talk about in a year in film, the TV version. Um, you know, even then, she never, ever gave up. Like, she just, she didn't, she stuck to her, she stuck to her guns and, like, just completely did the, fully realized visions of what she wanted, even with studio interruptions.
0: And it seemed like people liked to work with her. Like According oh, to yeah. union rules, um, the, they could not rehearse on Sundays. And she re- she rehearses all of her films in advance to create that camaraderie, right? So everyone comes and hangs out. So what she would say to people, is, she's like, I'm going to put on a co- pot of coffee. I'm going to be here. If you happen to show up, I will be here and there will be coffee. And everyone always showed up to rehearse and do things on the Sunday and didn't get paid Aww. for it. And it was just, that's what they did on their day off because they liked spending time together. Again, that's That's great casting. You feel that in this film. You feel that. I wish, I wish, maybe
1: they exist, actually. They're all at Cohen Media, but I wish the B-roll was available for Between the Lines because I would kill. I would kill to see what got cut with (laughs) Jeff Bloom and Between the Takes and... I don't, when I, you know, there's this thing with wine, red wine. I'm a fan of red wine. I There's (laughs) this thing with red wine in films where you can tell, like they're just putting fruit punch in wine glasses and it looks so fake. I watched this film and the first thing I noticed was like, oh, that's a fine Chianti. Like, they're <laughs> like, I know you're not supposed to. Look I'm at so those legs. Yeah. I think they are drunk and actually drinking, and it's, like, real wine from a bottle. It's not fake movie wine, which drives me nuts.
0: Uh, like, their lips are starting to turn purple. Oh, like, where Jeff Goldblum is, for, is, like, playing the drums and forcing them all to, to play a song with them and jam with him, and he everyone's just like, no, dude, no, we're done. We're closing yeah. the bar. And he's yeah. like, one more! And you're just like, but Jeff Goldblum is that guy. Um, yeah. And you were talking earlier about his friend with Bruno Kirby and apparently no. Bruno Kirby introduced never. Goldblum to frozen yogurt and his yeah. quote is I remember Bruno saying they have a store here that sells frozen yogurt you never heard of such a thing they freeze <laughs> it and you know it's great <laughs> and apparently they would just go for frozen yogurt all the time and this is their bonding thing and I'm like yeah, you read. What I do find interesting, as I mentioned earlier, this was not written by her. She does not have the, mm-hmm. the writing credit for it. It's written by Fred Barron, who later on would become a baron of sitcoms. So he had uh, Caroline in the City is his, like he had some really big sitcoms. My family, if you watch UK television, which was enormous in the UK, Zoe Wanamakers and that, like just huge. This, when it's not you hanging out with them and like the plot, quote unquote, is happening. It's just a little too episodic and, like, a little too cheesy and mm. there is that stuff. Like, the Bruno Kirby trying to cut his teeth on this, like, I'm going to expose uh, this record producer who's selling the records. or Is it a yeah. DJ or record producer something like that who's selling the bootlegs? And then these two guys come and beat him up and everybody has to go rescue him and you're like... Yeah, this is very like seventies independent. But it allows her to do a
1: car chase. Like I love that Between the Lines yes. has a car chase
0: in it. Like that and then
1: you've got Jeff Goldblum in this compact car. <laughs> With his knees his are his yeah. like beside his ears as he's trying to like <laughs> And then he does. He beats up these mafia guys because <laughs> Bruno Kirby's a good guy. I love Michael J. Pollard in this film. He's the guy yeah. who sleeps under the pinball machine. Yep. Yeah. I think he's like the custodian. We're never really sure what he is at well, this office. He like,
0: opens the movie for us because he sells the paper yeah, and he gives mm-hmm. you the vibe immediately yeah. as he's going from literally car to car. And like he's talking. He's a talking, paper boy. He's a paper boy. He's <laughs> talking about the muckraking. He's hitting on women in their car as he goes by. Like you have the yeah. whole vibe of the film right away from him, right? Sleeping you know the are he, has, he literally car car. has a little roll
1: away like mattress under a pinball machine, <laughs> and <laughs> and he's like responsibilities to like start the coffee maker in the morning. It is just such a, I don't know what a what if this was a film that you know credit where credits due Criterion Channel put on I think before Joan died actually yes I believe I could be wrong but they they premiered the restoration um and there's always like one film I watch per year that just defines that entire year and that year which was 2020. Bad year, it turns out, um, with this movie. Like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I just watched it over and over and over again. Um, Yeah, and then the next year was Chili Scenes of Winter, her next film. But um, 2021 was also a bad year. So, I mean, these are all
0: on But <laughs> with Chili Se- Scenes of Winter, that got taken away because that was a studio film. That got taken away from her and they mm-hmm. changed the title and they cut mm-hmm. it and they gave it a happy ending Um, and then they released it and it was no bueno. And then she took it back, recut it, released it, and it made $40 million. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's the other big thing is her movies made money. Like you said, Crossing Lancy made $125 million. Like, that's wild for a rom-com.
1: Yeah, with a female lead. Like that's the other thing is look at Between the Lines is an exception, although I think you know there's there's very strong female characters in it, but um, the idea of Hester Street and crossing Delancey is book and films because really Hester Street's the the, it's about Carol Kane's character even though she doesn't appear for like forty five minutes into the film. Um, It's very rare for films with
0: female central characters to make any money. But hours. I mean, how do you not love Avi or being Crossing Delancey? It's one of my favorite things. This is the same woman who trusted her actors and improv, which doesn't mm-hmm. always work. Yeah. Because sometimes you let them go and you end up with, I'm going to totally go after, um, you know, uh, movies that need to be ed- ed- edited significantly that are comedy films that have come out later on. Um, but this is one where, like, you, she knew you could put uh, Sylvia Miles and Reitzel Boisik, who was one of the biggest Yiddish actresses of all time, uh, in the same moment, just turn the cam- camera on on them and go, discuss her like she's your daughter. And you you get magic, right? This is the same thing kind of happening here where it's just, uh, like, she had to re- rewrite kind of a third of the film to just let these people exist in the way that she understood them to exist because of her time in the, the village voice. Like she knew what this was supposed to look like and feel like and was able to guide them in that direction. Yeah.
2: I love the scene where the guy comes in, the like performance artist, and he like takes um, the typewriter and throws it on the floor and is like, this is performance art. And then of course, Jeff Goldblum comes in and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to do performance art too. And he just like knocks a table over and then he's like, You know, and I I watched the scene. I was like, this is definitely has to be improv, like the way that that it it goes through and like nothing totally makes sense. And the way that they label the art pieces is very like random and and not like perfect. It just feels like a moment in time. And coming back to sort of what you're talking about, like with the sitcoms and, and Fred writing this film. It also feels like a moment from a sitcom that we would like see today, just like an absurdist kind of scene,
0: right, Becky? H- 100%. I'm totally with you. And I, I want to kind of bring into it that this is very much a precursor. I, I actually recommended this to my uncle who um, one of his favorite movies of all time is The Big Chill. He brings it up all the time. It's mm-hmm. one of his favorite things. And I was like, oh, well, you need to see this because this is very much the precursor to The Big Chill, including the Jeff Goldblum character. It's like in a, a direct extension because um, Ma- the Max character, would, or Michael, who's the character there is the, basically the same thing and uh, Michael would end up writing for People Magazine he's all, he was all delusional like it's the natural extension of that this is also a big year for um, Jeff Goldblum because he's it's his first Like he'd been in movies before in small roles including National. he's one of the well and he's one of the the uh, guys who assaults in, uh, in Death Wish he's one of the gangsters in Death Wish which is mm-hmm. just wild um, but he's also in a film called The Sentinel have you guys seen this movie? No, I've I, never seen this. I haven't oh seen it either. Okay. So. Uh, I recommend it with the caveat in that it is an excellent, like, slow burn horror film. Uh, if you want to see Jeff Goldblum get dubbed over, where it's he's, he's playing a photographer and he's like, hello, friends and family, welcome, please <laughs> smile. Because I guess his voice was just a little too unique for whatever they wanted. <laughs> um, the caveat is that, unfortunately, they used actual people with physical deformities to be demons who have crossed over the gates of hell. Not great, but it's it is an interesting little thing. But that was also um, a, a big kind of uh, thing for him. Where then after this is when he really starts to pick up and people start to notice him and, and figure out how to cast him properly. He was a theater actor. A lot of people don't know that. Is he broke out on Broadway when he was seventeen? But he's yeah. just so he's just so unique. It was one of those like, oh, you were either going to be a massive star or you were you were going to find your place somewhere. Like you're just so charismatically unusual. Yeah. He's an invasion of the body snatchers
1: the year after, right? Which is yes. a real
0: turning point for him. Yeah.
1: yeah. All the like side characters, everyone
2: is just perfectly cast in this film. Like mm-hmm. everyone that you encounter is so good. But going back to Jeff, it's like this is exactly the same Jeff we see today. Like the scene, yes. the scene when he's um, teaching the class to the girls and he's just like going off on tangent. Upon and it's tangent. such bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about music like, criticism. Oh
0: it's such yeah. bullshit. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the artist. And what does the artist do? He does. Precisely that. To do. The verb to act. Coming from the Latin, actus perfectus, dan song in mein tocha shtectis.
2: Would you imagine him like, you know, he, he does jazz and stuff, right? Like he, he performs himself nowadays and he's just at a, he bars talking to people like this all the mm-hmm. time, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this is him, exactly. And then he gives out his number at the end of the class. It's just... It's perfect. And I remember, Alicia, when you screened this as part of the retro and you did the intro and you're like, I bet you a lot of you are here because of Jeff Goldblum, Um, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's true. But then you watch the movie and like he is a part of it. But like the whole movie is just so charming in its own way. In addition to him, it's just. I want to watch this movie once a year, I think. Like, I just really feel what you said, Becky, about it being lived in. I I really feel that. Like, nothing really happens in this movie. If, If you have to explain the plot of this movie, it's kind of hard because a lot of stuff happens, you know? But it feels so grounded in reality in a way that so many films do not. And I just, mm-hmm. I want to hang out with these people. I, I used to be a journalist and it makes, it makes me go like, man, do I need to be a journalist again? Like, do I need no, to go no, back? No, no, I know. I know
1: I shouldn't. Especially because when I hear what they get paid of this movie. And even when Stephen Collins it's is here. Parent- the tagline of this film is like, oh, let me grab it. It's so, so funny. I just bought the poster in New York pretty recently. Incredible. Um, let me just find it. C- keep going, Emily. It's. it's- it's a very pertinent tagline.
2: But yeah, like $75 a week is what Jeff Goldblum says he makes. And then even Stephen Collins' book deal, he's like $2,500. And you're like, oh, God, <laughs> like, I'm just so upset. But I think that this movie does well in like making you want to be part of this community. Like you were kind of saying earlier, uh, Alicia. And I, I love that. And I, I, I just, it makes you kind of nostalgic.
0: Um there's some moments that genuinely make me smile too. I love when he's uh when John Heard is trying to pick her up and she gets on the subway and she's having none of it and he's just like, Yes, well he keeps talking to her even though she's not yes. there. And it's like, well, that is so charming. And I can see her watching that being like, All right, you got me. Good work. That's adorable. Like, yeah. I know. Also,
2: can I just say the clothing in this movie? I loved it. I just, I just, I just loved it. Um, aside from Jeff's clothing, I just like love the girl's shirts. I love the tucked into the jeans. I love guys in, in wider leg jeans. I just,
1: (laughs) you know, I don't know. I, um, couldn't, I can't find the poster online. I, I think the poster I have is pretty rare. So I have to actually go to my Instagram to zoom in on the photo Fun adventure romance on $75 a week. That was the. <laughs> there we like, go. I love that they just say $75 a week. Like that is the film's tagline. I love this poster. I cannot wait to get this framed. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And
0: with that, with people we want to hang out with and uh, the times changing, we're going to have a look at uh, the other side of the ocean. It's peppermint soda. And that's coming up after the break. Hey, Cam. Yes, Becky. <laughs> so dry. I love it. So we've been doing this show for a few years now, and we have this huge back catalog behind us, and it features so many amazing guests. Not only have I really enjoyed sharing what I've learned, but also hearing so many different perspectives and stories from our guests has been really fun and enlightening. Uh, Like Jay Baruchel talking about Canadian film. He really is that passionate about it. It's not an act. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing, too, is everybody, even if you're like, this is a massive movie that everybody's seen, everybody's going to consume it differently. And I think that that's why we like to get on, like, a diversity of voices, because uh, quite often... Yeah, you just don't expect what you expect, and I and I think it's been like very satisfying. Yeah, and I mean, then you get an episode like uh, *Diabolik Magazine*'s incredible Kat Ellinger uh, talking about Yudarowski's Holy Mountain, and I don't think I've heard the word uh, "Beatles butthole" used so intellectually before, <laughs> nor do I think I ever will again. And of course, you can hear her and all of our other amazing guests. Can't, of course, name them all for lack of time. You guys want to get back to the show and listen to our current amazing guests? So I'm gonna let you do that right now. But if you want to hear more, Of course, you can get episodes wherever you found this podcast, or you can visit hollywoodsuiteca slash podcast. Okay, let's get back to the show. There are few slice-of-life movies as refreshing as Peppermint Soda, or Diablo Mint, as it's called in its original French. This autobiographical film's dedication title card lets you in for exactly the tone of the movie. For my sister, who still hasn't returned my orange sweater. Flowing but biting, it's a movie that feels like a memory as it switches points of view in the lives of two Parisian adolescent sisters and their mother between the years 1964 and 1965 as they deal with shifting relationships. A consistent theme, people change, relationships change. For a movie made in 1977 about the 60s, I... I think it still feels very fresh and relatable. Emily, sounds like you found yourself relating. How was this one for you? Yeah,
2: it's very relatable. It reminded me a lot of my other favorite movies. Um, a recent movie that it reminded me of, which is another French film, is Petite Maman, which was like one of my favorite movies, I think, of last mm-hmm. year. Um, Because it was like two little girls in it. Um, But also it really reminded me of Little Women. And hear me out. Hear me out. (laughs) Um, uh, Because I just rewatched the 1994 version because I just screened it uh, in Toronto. And I felt like this is like if... Joe and Amy March had their own spinoff movie that was just the two of them because there's like an older sister who's a little bit more politically minded, a little bit more politically active, a little smarter. And then the younger sister that just like just wants a pair of pantyhose
0: just wants to have what her
2: sister Just has. wants
0: to be involved and <laughs> therefore is making Frank Cohn phone calls at the worst possible time, yes. Yes,
2: yes. And so I really, I just, I love movies that are about little girls that let little girls be little girls and be messy and make mistakes and try things and be brats, you know? And I feel like this film really gets to the heart of that while also being like, We've talked about this before, I know, on uh, our Kirsten Dunst episode that we did, The Three of Us. But, like, you know, I think people also don't always let girls be smart in movies, too. And I think what I like about this is that it really allows for both, through both of the characters. Like, Frederic gets to sort of have this political radicalization over the course of the film. And then Anne gets to just, like, learn about sex, you know? There's, like, two sides to the coin. And I think... Um, that's what makes this film so relatable. Is it, it it shows you every side of the like young girl experience,
1: and she is truly the queen of breaths, like <laughs> the shoplifting, and the, it's so relatable. Um, and she has messy hair, and she's not super fashionable. Like I think if this film were translated into a current, you know, lens she would be wearing like Chanel for kids like and it's just it's not interested in that. Um, There's a
0: lot of moments this reminded me of Just Another Girl on the IRT, which we talked about in the the podcast previously, which I I love. I love that movie, especially when it comes to the horizontal learning about sex. Like they have a whole by horizontal learning, I mean, like it's peers kind of teaching peers as opposed to an authority teaching down. Um and like they have the best conversation about dicks in the world and just how terrifying <laughs> dicks are <laughs> two meters
1: long. Actually, two it's, meters long.
0: It's so, but you remember those conversations of like, oh God, and it steer instills fear and curiosity and I also like that you're seeing a young woman who is 13 but she isn't quite interested in boys yet. Like, she's a late bloomer. She hasn't had her period yet. She fakes having her period, so everyone thinks she does. Um, But she's not quite there yet, and I like that because so many of these movies, like, both you and I, Alicia, love several of these coming-of-age movies that have to deal with sex. This one doesn't in the same way, and I think that's really interesting and unique.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think we're referring to Little Darling. You betcha. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love, Uh, yeah. three years later and much more of like a Hollywood translation of this. Um, but yeah, the, it's a very early example of, uh, I think I like when it's not a genre, it's just a cycle of films that occur between 1979 and 1982 about young girls, specifically between the ages of 13 and 14, maybe 15 at most. So they're not really teenagers. Um, I'm thinking of like Fox's Times Square, um, you know, Peppermint Soda does it first, which is really interesting in France, and yet it's set in the 60s.
0: Yeah. But was also we should be, be clear. This was a huge hit in France. This may this was the number one grossing film that year in France, which is nuts. Um, it won the uh, the uh, Prix Louis de Luc, which were like at their time at that time was the equivalent of the Oscars. There, like there wasn't the Cezals at that point. Right. Um, it's it, it, I mean it's ridiculous how well this film did. But she, like many other women uh, filmmakers at the time, really had trouble uh, getting it funded. So she was able to get government funding for it. Um, most people her down because, of course, they were like, oh, it's uh, it's a film um, about young women. A lot of people thought that she was um, ripping off the 400 blows um, because they're like, oh, you're talking about delinquent young people and this is exactly the same film. But she was finally able to convince a couple people on the board to give her a small grant and then from that, because she had money, she was able to find independent financing for it. But she ended up directing the film. She only wanted to write it and she ended up directing the film because she had to put down a director's name on the grant. So she just put down her own and because that was one of the conditions of the grant funding she ended up directing it and she'd never picked up a camera she hadn't even taken a still photograph in her life but uh, she just happened to hook up with um a cinematographer named philippe Rousselot, who people may not know the name of but you have seen his work in that it's like interview with the vampire and a river runs yeah. through it he does all of the harry potter cri- uh, Grimes of grimmendalwald those fantastic beast movies that's all him he's a huge hollywood cinematographer And this movie is like uh, so impressionist picturesque. Like it's very clear she was, she understood how to express what her vision was, even though she didn't necessarily know the technicalities of the way it's filmed. I think she's recreating family
1: photos, which you see in the end credits. Like I think she's actually almost like an archivist in some ways, looking at her family history and, and the materials associated with it and actually recreating it for film, which is why, just like Between the Lines, when it comes from an authentic place, it feels real and very lived in and it's a world that we want to be part of. I guess the other thing to kind of note is her working within the French system is very notable because unlike most countries, France had an incredible history of women filmmaker pioneers. And if you look at 1977, this is a year of one sings, the other doesn't. Um, You know, so Varda is working at this time at the height of her career. Uh, Ackerman is um, not French, she's Belgian, but sort of, if we can allow that, like, if you look at 70s French, Franco women filmmakers, it's it's an incredible moment in film history. And I think it's interesting to have Diane Curris in the center of that, because I do wonder if with the government funding, she was given chances that, for instance, someone like Joan McLean Silver working in 1977 in Hollywood, absolutely would not have been given that chance because of her gender.
0: Yeah.
2: That's so interesting. I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about French female filmmakers and just how they're like so unafraid of femininity. Like, and I, I don't know what that is, but like, I was I was thinking about this in contrast to one thing the other doesn't and how they're like I think they're like sister films, like no, like unintended, yeah. because like it's about two women that are experiencing different parts of their lives and trying to find themselves. Um, but these are these are young women and those are adult women, you know? And obviously they're dealing with different types of political strife, but this movie is is steeped in that as well. And I just I, I love both of these films, both of those films so much, but they they represent different parts of the the female experience. But they're so unafraid to be female that I love it. I just I just I just love it. It feels fearless to me in a way God, that there's something... some films today don't even lean into this,
1: you know. There's something to be said about directing from personal experience. Like if we think about one sings the other doesn't. It's it's a musical about abortion,
0: and <laughs> of course,
1: uh, Varda is speaking to her real experience of you know having being forced into an illegal abortion because there was no legal means, um, and that's what makes that that film so phenomenal. Uh, 1977 is News from Home. Chantal Ackerman literally narrating the postcards and letters her mother sent her over a two-year period while she was studying filmmaking in New York. Um, these are such personal films, and it feels like women filmmakers are able to manifest like almost journal-entry style <laughs> filmmaking. And that definitely reminds me of Peppermint Soda with that sort of... The whole idea that the film is called Peppermint Soda is because these girls drink this, um, looks like creme de menthe, it's non-alcoholic, but it's like neon green beverage, because uh, it makes them look like adults you know it's served in like kind of absinthe glasses but clearly is not absinthe
0: well and she's not allowed to hang out in the cafes when her sister finds her she sends her home she's like who do you think you are wearing pantyhose and drinking in a cafe with boys <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but it's interesting because the original name well, the title of the film that the, the releasing co- the distribution company wanted to give it was um, histoire de petit fille or the history of little girls um, and mm. she was like no that's totally bland we're literally trying to give the film a flavor and that is the flavor of the this film is this like bitter but refreshing peppermint soda flavor and it's like huh, you are in fact correct that is exactly what this is it's the best name for a film
2: and I love the French version to Diablo month like yeah just, and and the way that um the font is at the start of the film too mm-hmm. like that cursive sort of peppermint colored it's just um it is like this movie has a bubbly quality to it while also dealing with serious issues, you know? Yeah.
1: It's, uh, I, do, I do wonder if it's making a slight nod to a 1967 film by Carlos Sora called Peppermint Frappe, which was a huge hit mm. on the, like, art house circuit. Um, it's more of a psychological thriller, but uh, Geraldine uh, Chaplin's in it because I think she was married to Carlos Sora at the time. But uh, it's kind of the more – it's it's a very famous film, and I do wonder if putting peppermint kind of in – the title is linking those two films. So Ring some bells. Apperman, I think Frappé is a, a maybe a Spanish-French co-pro or maybe just Spanish, but certainly um, would have had a ginormous release in France.
0: Interesting. It, you know what movie it reminds me of? This is going to sound weird, but uh, it reminds me of A Christmas Story, which is easily my favorite mm-hmm. Christmas film, um, because at that you're looking at childhood memories through a filter of adults, which I think like a lot of people, you're just like, oh, no, no, I'm watching The Adventure of the Kids. No, you're not. You're watching an adult thinking back about his story, and he's retelling it, so there's some inconsistencies. And you're definitely getting that voyeuristic point of view happening here. And I think of it specifically as any time you are watching men leer at these young girls, which happens all the time, mm-hmm. um, it's slamming it down. Every every single time you're seeing it happen, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And then you get the feeling of how it made them feel and what they wish they could have said and and, and that sort of, sort of um, attitude towards it. And it's a very interesting balance because you feel like you're part of this world, but also that you're observing this world simultaneously and the memory of it. And you're able to keep that distance and kind of critique what was happening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like processing. I mean, I think we
1: all, unfortunately, have memories of things that from our childhood that at the time we didn't understand what was happening. And now when you reflect on it as an adult, it's terrifying that you yeah. know you were in that dangerous situation or these, um, mostly behaviors of men were condoned by whoever schools, teachers, whatever. Um, it is, it's, it's a real, like it's, I think she's really processing her, her childhood, especially through the lens of divorce. Like you really get a sense that this divorce has completely rocked her world. Um, the relationship with the father character is very, s- not strange, but strained. The film, you know, opens with them having just spent a summer. He's in Normandy, so they get this little beach vacations in the summer. And they're, you know, they're saying goodbye to him on the train. Their heads are sticking out the window. And then they're like, hey, dad, remember you need the check for mom. And he's like, oh yeah, maybe next month. Like, there, it's just such a, um, a great way to open the film because you're like, oh, this isn't romanticized. This guy's no. not paying child support. It's mm-hmm. not paying spousal support. Like this is a single mom raising these two girls, and yet he gets all the glory because he's got you know the fun coastal <laughs> town to live in, and the mom has to be the disciplinarian, and you know, and he shows up shows up to one of the plays, and then doesn't even like talk to the girls afterwards. Like he's terrible. So ter And this is her really. You know, it's a film about really the age that she was when her parents divorced.
2: Yeah, yeah. The men in this movie, in general, like there's also the father of of um friend who kisses her when she goes to his house to like find out about her friend and I I who also
0: doesn't seem to care about his his daughter missing it's like oh no no my my 15 16 year old will come back eventually like oh my god
2: yeah it's 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 gross um so I I like that part of it and also even the mother gets sort of like an interesting story about how she's like trying to her own way and find somebody else too to date and
1: and brings that person to the play to you know it's mm-hmm. uh, it, it but doesn't want the dad to know that she brought a date which is like well if you're not paying child support <laughs> what? <laughs> how, like, what? Yeah, yeah you have no say in anything at this point um, yeah I think but, we we should also probably point out like the Jewishness of this story yes coming back to between the lines which has Jewishness in it too um you know, this is the girls do experience anti-Semitism. Um, it's, it, you know, they're also kind of working out their post-World War II Jewish identity. Um, it's fascinating because I, I think it's, again, the year of Annie Hall, and yet there's better films that talk about <laughs>
0: but you're, they're also dealing with um, a lot of extremely serious issues here like the Algerian crisis the uh, yeah. uh, the fear of the atomic bomb I mean uh, the assassination of Kennedy happens uh, partway through this film right like it's it gets really intense and yet and you're you have one uh, little girl um, explaining watching protests and seeing some protesters killed in front of her house as her parents watched from a balcony like children like a 13 14 year old was killed in the protests and or you're watching her process this story in real time and then all the, ki- the bell rings and all the kids are like okay bye because it just doesn't hit for them the gravity of what this little girl is going through but that's what you're like when you're a kid right some stuff is just too big to handle but it happens around you and it affects you and so you're what, having both kids you have frederick and then you have anna but both of them together you are seeing them at different ages of when you're able to process that big information and how where one of them is politicized and the other one is kind of brushing it off
2: yeah. I even think yeah. like the Kennedy assassination is like it's in there, but it's not a huge part of it. It's like sort of a moment. And mm-hmm. then there's even like in the background, Edith Piaf's funeral is like another mm-hmm. point. Like, yeah. like, you know, I just felt like that is when you're a kid. I remember uh, when I was in grade seven was when uh, 9-11 happened and I was at a retreat uh, with my class and they told us what happened and it went over our heads. Like and I know that that sounds crazy, but we we weren't able to watch TV that whole time, and we just heard it, and we like it's one of the biggest things that that happened in our youth. But like we did not process it, you know what I mean. And I think you are just thinking about different things at that time, and that's okay because you're a kid. But also, what I think is interesting is Frederique, like her world is kind of rocked when she hears this classmate say this, and and she slowly starts to go through a process of like coming to terms with like. What does she want to be doing? Does she really care about her boyfriend that much? Or does she want to like learn more about politics? Does she like her friend? She ends up ditching sort of a friend because they don't want to talk about serious stuff, you know? And I, and I think it it is so important to portray uh, girls sort of figuring this stuff out and trying to reconcile with reality um, at the same time as like you're growing too and you have like changes in your body and 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 wants and needs so you're like wrestling with reality with also whatever's happening with your body you know it's it's a it's such a
1: complicated time it's so important to point out the seismic gap between being a 13 year old and a 15 year old like it's only two years and i don't think it's only two years and yet it is like the difference in adulthood of being like twenty and sixty. <laughs> like <it's, laughs> those those two years matter so much in terms of what you're saying, Emily—hormones and development and sexuality and um, your emotional yeah. capacity as well. Yeah, yeah. And so seeing the difference between um, Anna and Frederic, and knowing that you know she is going to grow into that at some point, um, which obviously the sequel Molotov Cocktail focuses on it did make me really reflect on just how rapidly your world is shifting as a pubescent girl.
2: Yeah. 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 Even like, I love this scene in the bathtub, uh, which was maybe a scene that like, I don't know if it would play so well today. Like the two girls are having a bath together and like, uh, Frederic is like, I'm going to break up with my boyfriend. And then Anne starts crying about it. Like she's like so <laughs> upset about it. It's not even her boyfriend, but she's like crying. And then, uh, Frederick just like stops her by being like, puts her foot in her mouth, which is a bit of a weird thing. But I think that's just, that is a, a sign of the emotional, the difference in emotions between the two girls is like one of them's crying about her, her, her sister's boyfriend. Like her sister breaking up with her boyfriend. You know what I mean? And her sister's like, it's fine, I'm breaking up with my boyfriend. I'm I'm mature enough to be like, I'm ready to break up with my boyfriend, you know?
0: Yes. Uh, we, we should say that uh, Eleanor Clarouin, uh, who plays Anne in that scene, uh, talked about how that was one of the worst mm-hmm. scenes she had to film, where she was just like, that was disgusting, <laughs> Having specifically having the literal foot in her mouth of this other actress. She's like, were I to have agency later on, I would have said no to doing that. So it does, when you watch it, feel like something a sister would do to another sister like there is such an intimacy in that act and like you when you have a sibling sometimes you feel like you have an agency over their body that you do not <laughs> and those yeah. boundaries need that's to be great, set great um but there is definitely that feeling there we're like oh you're doing this with two actresses and that's maybe there's a boundary being crossed here but it does feel very real yeah. right
2: yeah yeah it's it's a weird scene it's a weird scene i think emotionally it's interesting but it is it is a weird moment and the rest of the movie doesn't make me feel like that. Like I, I don't think there's any other uncomfortable moments like that, but you know, again, it, it. It's a different time.
0: I do want to talk about the periods in this because I went back and looked, and I genuinely got curious about this. I went down a rabbit hole about when we first started talking about periods in films, and I couldn't find a lot about the international market. It appears the first on-screen period blood was 76 with Carrie, you know, great, healthy depiction right there. And then there was a Disney-made instructional cartoon from 1946 that was sponsored by Kimberly Clark, which is weird... But it it actually is pretty factual. It's like, this is what your hormones are doing and this is what you then need to do and everything's fine. And like, it takes a pretty, fairly progressive approach. Like, there's no shame in it. It's just very factual. But then I also found out that radio and TV ads uh, banned menstrual products until 1972 in the States. So they couldn't even advertise any of the products until 1972. And Courtney Cox was the first person to say the word period on TV in an ad for Tampax in 1984. So like, that's how non-progressive we were at this point. So that even just talking about periods in the depths that they do here would have been extremely progressive and would have just been, you know... Uh, and this played in, in, um, in the U.S. This did extremely well in the U.S. Ebert gave it a huge review. He loved it. He, yeah, Ebert loves things about little
1: girls. I don't mean that... He's I sure don't does. mean controversial like he always does. <laughs> no, I know.
0: Did. No, no, no. Um, but, it's, but it's a different point of view and he, he appreciates it. Yeah,
1: again. it's interesting doing this podcast and talking about this film the same year that... Catherine called birdie is released. So I think I really, really, I don't know if you've seen it, Becky. Um, I really loved that film and it, it it felt like even in 2022, um, having a 14 year old female protagonist and have the whole storyline kind of revolve around her getting her period, uh, felt fresh like it shouldn't because I can't believe all of this I do believe all of this but I still think we're not quite there like it starts with peppermint soda I don't think we're in a place where women aren't shamed for menstruation like we we totally still are there
0: oh yeah no we i think we still still are i mean now we're seeing advertisements with red instead of blue (laughs) like now finally it's like oh no this is an actual thing
2: yeah i know (laughs) i remember i also saw slums of beverly hills in theaters oh um, my god the chair
1: yes of course the
2: the chair yeah she gets her period (laughs) at dinner at this at this woman's house and gets blood on it and I remember, like people like gasping in the theater when it happens. And I was like, "Is this just because like they're like embarrassed for her because it would be embarrassing? And it's always mm-hmm. embarrassing if if your period leaks on your pants. It's horrible. But like, is it because they're also just shocked of seeing period blood? You oh, know? for like, sure,
1: one hundred percent.
2: Yeah, and it that's so messed up because it's just a regular part of our existence, you know. And and we're so afraid of it. So I I found this movie so refreshing. Uh, in that way, and and it sucks that it feels almost like radical, and it's it's and it's an old film, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's it's just it's it's kind of sad. Um, we need to continue reclaiming the period. If I ever make a movie about little girls, which is a hope of mine, periods <laughs> will be part of it. I'll make a whole. Scene. have you seen
1: catherine called birdie
2: i haven't yet and i'm dying to i know i know i know i know i'm so behind it's it's a crazy year for film i feel like there's so much going on no there's no judgment there
1: there's something about that film like it was at tiff and then it got released on prime and then no one talked about it like it's i I don't know if it's the like the resentment of lena dunham or what the situation is but um i would i I was i love it and the hot priest from fleabags in it He's yeah but <laughs> medieval right father it's just so great <laughs> but i
2: think even to this day people have an a certain like uh worry about films about young girls like there's just like mm-hmm. this like, oh i don't want to watch that that's for girls you know whereas if it's for boys they're like okay i'll i'll give that a go you know what i mean and 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 so it makes me sad and it makes me upset that I haven't seen that because I feel like I'm always on the on the train to watch. It's Ghost a
1: good family watch. also' for, for the holidays, Emily.
0: <laughs> there's also a disbelief of this is the actual experience of young girls. Like, I think about the reaction to Turning Red, mm-hmm. right? And everyone was like, oh, no, no, you just wrote that for a specific subset. It's like, no, I found that one of the most relatable films I've ever seen. Like, that was extremely powerful to me to watch that film. I know I some people didn't care for it. It was a big deal for me. Um, but this was another film that people watched, and they were like, oh, there's no way you dealt with uh, teachers who were that nasty. And it's like, no, 100%, she did. Or like, that, like some of the best moments of comedy come from watching watching these absolutely absurd teachers, the gym teacher who, like, just keeps, who can't run at all, who, like, keeps injuring herself, attempting to demonstrate things, Um, but then who also scrubs makeup violently off the face of one of the students and then takes, like, scissors to her her, um, nails to scrape off nail polish. Like, it's a very violent, frightening moment, Uh, extremely aggressive as this this little girl just sobs in front of her, but it's like, no, 100% that happened. You saw that happen to someone. Like, how do you you make that up? Yeah, Like this was maybe there's a slight exacerbation because when you're younger, everything feels more dangerous and bigger in that way. But that it's an happened. era where you could beat children in schools. <laughs> yeah, It's not surprising at all that this stuff
1: happened, especially in all girls school that I mean, it's not an official finishing school, but this was a brand of kind of French schools that were meant to keep girls very conservative and very protected yeah. and very virginal.
0: Which well, works out real well for a line
1: them,
0: right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's literally a line, which is young women should have no involvement in politics. Yeah. Like, everyone is always like, women don't do politics, don't do politics. But this is all leading up, we should say, to the 1968 uh, student yeah. revolutions um, where people, where students were killed. It was meant to just be like a small protest so that they could stay overnight in each other's dorms and ended up exploding into this giant ci- uh, citywide civil unrest for student rights and things. People were killed. Um, it's part of what... Uh, it's what Molotov Cocktail, her fo- her follow-up film, is about and Anne going through that revolution. It's uh, it's real intense. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, this, that line, nothing about politics in school, especially the girls, like, I stood out to me and I, like, I wrote it down because I was just like, I was like, yep. Even today that would be the same. You know what I mean? It's like I think about the girls that like fight to like wear spaghetti straps in schools and stuff like that. Even like like I know that's not like political but it is political in a way, you know? And we're still battling. It's completely with this. political.
1: Completely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, it's it, like but men can not wear a shirt on the field when they're playing soccer and that's totally fine, but a girl le- just God forbid she wears something that is a little bit revealing and that causes an issue for the other boys at school and the teachers like gross, just, just gross. People are so gross about young girls.
0: It makes me (laughs) so angry. Yes, they are. And that's, that's the other reason these movies don't go well because people find them get extremely uncomfortable with them, right? Because we have this, this idea that we should, we all collectively should have autonomy over young girls' bodies and we, we don't like that's the thing it's there that's the politicalization right speaking
2: of autonomy over bodies there's another part like when they first get to school where you overhear just like conversations between the girls and like one girl's like she shouldn't have cut her hair and I was just like that's so real that you like talk about other girls and you're like I can't believe she cut her hair over the summer it looks horrible you know what I mean (laughs) and just like
0: As someone who watches The Real Housewives on a regular basis, I can tell you I still have opinions about other women's haircuts. You know, but I I
2: love that that's allowed to exist in that because I think that there's yeah. also like spaces where we're like, oh, we don't want to show like women cutting other women down, but like it does happen, and and also just like the way that we're socialized and the way that the patriarchy functions like hits us against each other, so we do talk shit about each other,
1: and also no one you know, is meaner. Than a 13 year old girl. <laughs> I will stand by that. That is well depicted. That is like in this the Komodo film. dragon
0: of the like animal world, reptile yeah. world. And yeah. That is exactly where we need to end this episode. And so, once again, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
1: thank you. I hope, if anything, people start checking out. Joan McLean Silver's films. I know you have a giant crush on Griffin Dunn, Emily, and he produced some of her films. So, I mean, come on, you, what you can't go wrong.
0: No, no, a crossing Delancey, man. Every time this one, I'll meet Mrs. Mendelbaum. This one, I'll meet. Just my heart goes. The <laughs> so oh, best one about pickles ever crazy. made. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Emily Gagne, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. You
2: so much for having me. I'm always here to talk about movies about uh, young girls
1: coming of age.
2: My favorite subgenre.
1: Then I demand you watch Catherine Called Birdie and send okay. me messages. Even if we're like away, send me Slack messages or text. You can text <laughs> me or Instagram me.
0: <laughs> okay, I will. I will. I will. All right, and you can join us in two weeks where we go away to Italy. That's right. We're looking at late seventies Jalo with the Pajama Girl case and the psychic, and we're going to be joined by expert in the field, Rachel Nesbit. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The Urine Film Podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Alicia Fletcher and Emily Gangye as guests. Supervised producer is Emily Gangye. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.